This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. This is really fun. I'm having a great time with you guys, by the way. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Well, Thank you for the time. Yeah, this is, and again, chance meetings through like LinkedIn and, and a podcast community, man. Here's to it, man. It works out great. I mean, you know, most people really enjoy movies, but they never really get a chance to talk about them. You know, you got maybe you go to a movie, you talk to somebody about a movie for about five minutes. Yeah, the ride home. Yeah, and that's it. So this just kind of fuels that opportunity to talk about things. And most of us have a film that's really had some impact or some memory. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 38, Alien. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. But before we get to the show, a few housekeeping notes. One, if you haven't been listening to the Dynasty Download, you're missing out. We're covering everything you need to know for your weekly fantasy football lineups, especially if you play Dynasty League football like we at the show love to do. There are two episodes every week, so there's more than enough content to get you going. Two, I was a guest this week on a uh, great podcast, the Recruiting Hell podcast, uh, this last week. If you follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or any of my other social media feeds, you might have seen it. My good friend Rob Conlon hosts that great show, and in a year where you certainly may need an extra boost in your job search, I would highly recommend giving him a listen, as I credit his show for a lot of my success this particular year. So tonight, we've got a very special guest our great friend from the Recruiting Hell podcast himself, Rob Conlon. Say hi to the folks at home, Rob. Hey there, folks. It's Rob. And as we do with all of our guests, we're going to put him in the hot seat for a second and ask him the same questions that everybody gets. So first up, tell us a little bit about yourself, Rob, and why you love movies. Oh, absolutely, Tom. And again, thank you guys, uh, both you and Dana, for having me on the show. Uh, it's great that you know we've been able to kind of do the exchange now, which is awesome. Uh, why do I love movies? And I get maybe for me, it's a why do I like a specific kind of movie? And I think that's what our sh our show and conversation is, is about today. For me, it's fun to go somewhere else. And I've always been that kid who had a really active imagination. I want to go to space. I want to do Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, fly a starship, things like that. And I had a really, a really active imagination when I was a kid. And the movies that always drew me in were the sci-fi adventure classics, and they, they always really held a special place in my heart. So I grew up watching things like all the Star Wars. I mean, I would, if if Star Wars was on TBS when I was 12 years old, I'm like pushing my dad out of his bedroom and be like, I I'm watching this on your TV, seriously. Uh, but, you know, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and as I aged a little bit more, uh, Armageddon, and then I got introduced to Predator and Terminator and all sorts of stuff like that. And it would, like, that's the kind of movie that I really enjoy. So that's why I love movies because I get to get, live in kind of those those sci-fi worlds for you know you you pay a visit if you will. It's the escapism. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, that's great to know and find out a little bit more about you. But what is your favorite movie and why? I have a feeling it's going to be the one we're discussing tonight. Am I right? You know, I was really I actually before you started recording this, I was like, am I really going to say that it's it's what we're talking about tonight? And I was like. Yes, but yes, but like I, if I have to look at all of the things that I've really watched recently, 
I got. I have to admit, I just love John Wick. I love the story. I love Keanu Reeves. I love the gunplay. I love everything about John Wick. But if I really look at it and go, yeah, that's been my last p- favorite movie in the last three years, and that was preceded by 300 because I like to wear Spartan armor and scream at people. But if I really look over the course of my entire life from what I can remember, it's always been Alien. It has always been Alien because it's been at every phase of my life. You know, the phase where I was scared of it as a kid, the phase where I really started to appreciate it as a sci-fi property, and now the kind of looking back at it from the other end of like, yeah, that was really scary stuff when you were 12 or 13, but now you look at it as, as a, I think, a, a cinematic triumph, that's for sure. It's certainly okay to have more than one favorite movie. Yes. Or A, B, and C. <laughs> uh, myself, case in point, I have uh, three that are tied for A, B, and C as far as I'm concerned. So finally, and I think this is sometimes the best one um, to really gauge and kind of in, immerse you in the show. Because it's not a matter of what your favorite movie is. It's sometimes judging the individual parts and the makeup and kind of dissecting it in so many ways. But what makes a good movie for you? I think what makes a good movie for me is the ability to be immersed. And I think that's part to do with pacing and it's part to do with believability. And for somebody like myself, a lot of my, my buddies get on me. Like I haven't seen many of the Marvel movies. I, I don't really care for them because I don't like the fantastical aspect of them. I like a lot of my movies to be real ish, if you will. And I really think that that's what sets it apart no matter what the genre is. And that's, that's what I think makes, makes a great movie is that it, you can insert yourself easily into the universe, whether it's a Western or sci-fi or a gangster film or, or, or a sports film or whatever it might be. And I really think that's kind of where a great movie lies in the pacing and the building of that universe that you can slide right into. Interesting. So world building would be something that is part of that. Absolutely. Um, I guess relatability, would you characterize it that way? On some level, yes. On other levels, no. I mean, like, can I be the captain of a starship? Eh, I don't know if that's something I can, I can actually achieve or anything like that. But you maybe you can see yourself in that, in that role. And maybe it, it sort of smooths over all of those doubts that you have about, you know, what, are, what can you achieve in life and what's, what are you left with on, on the surface, if you will. So if I may just slightly phrase it a different way, in sure. the relatability aspect, obviously you're correct in the uh, very basic physical nature. I can never be a Jedi. However, is Luke Skywalker going through similar problems uh, or feelings that I am as a person? Is he sure. a relatable character in that his struggle versus good and bad, positive versus negative emotions is always going to be there, and thus why you can see yourself with the same dilemma he's presented in this world. Yeah, and, th- and thank you for rephrasing that, by the way, Tom, because that, that was, you're absolutely right. Yes, you can see yourself as a starship captain, whatever it might be, but if you really look at it, Luke is a, is a guy trying to find himself in, in the Star Wars movies and things like that, and I think if we shift it to today's topic a little bit more i mean i see a lot of what probably every person on the face of the planet would be in lambert in lambert in alien i I think she is the character that that the the audience identifies with the most because she's probably the most human mostly because she's scared out of her mind as anybody faced with uh 
something as terrifying as that creature would be. We'll wait a second here before we get too deep into the film yet. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I apologize for going. We want to take it in a larger direction. But mm-hmm. I think I identify in watching the movie with Lambert, but if I were going through the situation, I might react like Parker. So if that That's, gives you an yeah. idea of where, where I might be at. I, I just have this feeling about myself that in in a particular scenario like that, under immense stress, I would react with anger and aggression more often than because of the the fear that it pushes me to a certain level that that's how you respond. But definitely in watching this, that is the reaction that you get as the audience. So I understand where you're coming from there. So as we discussed, we are coming at you for the Alien show this week. Uh, This is the 1979 Ridley Scott science fiction movie. Um, Just to give you basic outline on the movie, in deep space, the crew of the commercial starship Nostromo is awakened from their cryo-sleep capsules halfway through their journey home to investigate a distress call from an alien vessel. The terror begins when the crew encounters a nest of eggs inside the alien ship. An organism from inside an egg leaps out and attaches its crew, causing him to fall into a coma. Chaos ensues. All right, so this movie was uh, recognized for Best Art Direction, uh, or nominated, excuse me. It won for Best Visual Effects, which I'm sure will come up here at some point. In 2002, Alien was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. In 2008, it was ranked by the American Film Institute as the seventh best film in science fiction genre and as the 33rd greatest film of all time by Empire. So, the question we start off every one of these shows with, what is this movie about? Rob, you have the floor. Gotcha. Uh, this this movie is about survival, number one. I really think because this is the first time in, in cinematic history, I, I think, at least that I know of in major cinematic history, where you have a group of people in a science fiction setting where, the, where there is a monster and it's really hunting them. And I think that that's, that's the number one thing where, that the story is about is survival. But at the same time, it's also the humanity because there's, there's a point at, in the movie where they can either bring one of their comrades on board to try and save him or they can do quarantine procedures. And I really think that the choices in the movie are potentially, like, we as viewers go, oh, you're so dumb, why are you letting him on board? We'd all pull that airlock level we, lever. We really would. If it was somebody you cared about, you would totally pull that airlock level. It's the same thing with, like, uh, in uh, in zombie movies, you know, somebody hiding a bite. You, you don't shoot your grandma. You don't. <laughs> but it's, it's – I think that the movie is, again, survival, and it really brings – pairs us down to who are we when everything is hitting the fan. Absolutely everything. So I find it interesting that you highlighted that one moment because – and I'm going to say this already. We are going to spoil this movie. So if you have not seen it, it is available on HBO Max. Please go watch the movie and then. See, I was I was worried about that. I didn't want to spoil it too much. <laughs> I, I I throw that pretty much. It's out a forty year old movie. Yeah, we Come do. People complain. Time, people I, complain. I'm still, you know, people find new movies every day. So let's just. But if you want, do not want this to be spoiled for yourself. Go watch it first, then come back at this point as of right now. 
I find it ironic that you mentioned that point and the human nature of that being, especially because the person who pulled the airlock was not human. Right, it's an android. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, I really didn't have too much else. I, I think it's survival in extraordinary circumstances. I think to the or for what this particular movie in your idea of it was i guess if i am to highlight a special characteristic of it in other types of movies that are comparable where you have a survival aspect there's some form of an escape or something possible when you have this creature on board the ship there's really nowhere to go you're pretty much locked in i know that they have like an escape hatch but even that plan is limited until a uh, different point in the movie. Only a few of them would have been able to survive. Obviously, in the end, it really doesn't matter because really there's only one person left. But you're in such a limited space with a threat that is deadly and lethal. I know that's kind of redundant, but still. And in a fairly confined area with no real way of dealing with the threat in in any credible means. Right. I mean, it's. I think you touch on something there really important, Tom, is that they're trapped inside the spaceship with with the alien. But in most other sci-fi movies, yeah, you've got your your plasma rifle right over there, and you can go shoot some holes in that thing. You have some way to defend yourselves. These guys are literally space truckers is the way I've always heard this movie described. Is that it's truckers in space. And they have the limited capacity to defend themselves with whatever the heck's in their rig toolbox. And yes, they rig up the flame units and things like that. But when it really comes down to it, a, a flamethrower is kind of a melee weapon, if you will, when it comes to a crazy hyper-evolved predator. I mean, you really got to be, got to have something that would reach out and touch somebody better than, than you know, uh, hairspray and match. You know. So I'll add in another layer that's extremely 2020. The threat continues to evolve all throughout the entire journey of this movie. And so much in the same way that a virus mutates and evolves and takes on new life form and you really have no way of knowing how to deal with it in the immediate, you are trying to figure it out on the fly. In most of these other survival movies, uh, for the most part, unless it's like this big bad thing like King Kong or something else, you're... Uh, very, or most of these people are attacking it from the standpoint of having a knowledge of what they're dealing with. This is completely and utterly foreign to all of the travelers. But, uh, Dad, I will cut you in on this. What did you think the movie was about? Having been a teenager about the time this movie came out, I can remember the days leading up to this. This movie came out on the heels of Star Wars. And in fact, this right. has been a screenplay that had bounced around Hollywood for a number of years, undeveloped. It was in development. And the only reason it was made when it was, was because of the success of Star Wars. Before Star Wars, everyone watched Star Trek. And I grew up with the reruns of Star Trek. I didn't happen to remember it. I was too young to watch it when it was on network. But to some extent, this is the furtherance of Star Trek and what you wanted to see Star Trek do. 
without the overacting of William Shatner. I think this drew more Trekkies in than Star Wars fans because this seems so much more close to what was going on in Star Trek than in uh, Star Wars. Star Wars had more of an altruistic view of life and of what was going on in space. This is much more meaty and this is, you know, you're doing X, you get to Y, and then you go to Z. And that's what this film, to me, is about, is the furtherance of what it means for space exploration, not the greater good or looking at the future. But this is what space is, is dealing with the nuts and bolts. They're bringing an asteroid back for mining purposes. And they just happen because their company says, hey, Maybe, and again, spoiler alert, they're trying to capture this uh, creature because it may be useful in their military division. It's just a different feel to me than, than what Star Wars is, which is much more about social content and about purpose and all this. This is, this is nuts and bolts of what it is to be in space to me. Totally. So I, I'm i going to object to your classification of the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars and say that it is quite clear to me that you are not a nerd because you basically <laughs> classified pieces of Star Wars that are Star Trekian. Trekkies are much more philosophical, but they have a grounded realism in that level of science fiction. Whereas I say the major difference between Star Trek and Star Wars is Star Wars takes place in a land or a fantasy a universe where the magical is possible. Star Trek does not, really. I mean, they may have more modernized technology, but they're not dealing with lightsabers. You know, Dana, you make a really good point there, Uh, and Tom, you do too. I think the, and this was what, when you and I were texting the other day, Tom, this is what I wanted to talk about. There's four different directions in sci-fi. There's light, there's dark, there's, uh, what is it? Yep, uh, there's noble and there's grim. So light and dark are on a spectrum. Noble and grim are on a spectrum. And different sci-fi properties are in different areas. So if you put them as a cross, you have you can chart a science fiction thing by by based on how it's interacting with those four adjectives. So Star Wars is probably a noble dark sci-fi. It has very good qualities where, you know, people care about each other and it, it's it's pretty, you know, people die and things like that. But if you look at like Star Trek, that's a noble bright or a noble light science fiction where people, you know, it's full of adventure. We're going to help go save the aliens. Alien is grim dark. Alien is 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 not only dark in theme, but it's dark in purpose. The universe is a scary place. You know, it's these, all of these are different aspects of the same thing in sci-fi, which again, either bright or dark and grim or, and grim or noble in that case. And you can find any science fiction thing on that spectrum. I will say for what this film is, it was incredibly subversive because realistically, You've had four or five major science or space films up to this point. Mm-hmm. So Star Wars, we already mentioned. Right. Um, another one we should mention that was a two years before this was um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, that was 77? I thought that was 81. That was 77. Oh. 
and uh, oh, 2001: God. A Space Odyssey, which you know, I that has such additional themes to it that I, I won't go into that because that's that's going to be a much more involved podcast. Of we we almost should bring on like a an abstract thought uh, processor for that movie. So I forgot to ask the actual first question we always do, and this is probably one of the more important ones. Uh, so we're going to transition into that one. But what is your relationship to this movie? Dana, you've already said quite a bit about yours, but do you want to finish off uh, kind of where you came about this? Well, I remember the day that I convinced my dad to install cable TV in our house as a, as a teenager. And in, in fact, also to add HBO. And that's where I saw this movie, was on HBO about 1980. I believe I was a sophomore in high school, and this movie came right on, right after it was released, and I watched this, and uh, at the time, I was absolutely terrified, because I'm like, why in the hell am I watching this? I don't like being scared. But it was like a car accident that you can't look away from, so I continued to watch it, and that's where it was. It's interesting that you would so readily, easily, and absolutely date yourself right there. But okay, Uh, Rob, what is your relationship to this movie? It's so funny because part of Dana's story is actually part of my story, too, so... Hold the hold the thought there, but there's a step before mine. So this is one of the the movies that my folks always kind of held up to me as a masterpiece of of really good cinema when I was a kid. And much like Dana, I don't like horror movies. I still don't. I'm again, I'm 34 years old. I don't like horror movies. But the first time I saw the Alien Alien uh, was at uh, Disney's MGM Studios on the Great Movie Ride. And I was sitting on the edge of the the giant people mover car and this crazy H.I. Geiger bug lizard man reaches out of the wall at me and is drooling and it's popping out of the ceiling. And when you're seven, that's terrifying. That's absolutely freaky. And then I was like, what is that? So I'm asking my parents about this. And if I really look at it, Alien and then, of course, Aliens, which is, you know, the sequel, are what broke a part of that like sci-fi love open in me and it exposed me to that, that sci-fi world of, you know, it's grim, it's dark, it's got horror. The universe is a scary place. And again, like my folks always talked about this as a, as a real masterpiece. And and it was kind of funny because it was from two angles. My dad thought it was really scary, but my mom who saw it with him in the theaters in 1979 actually laughed in a certain scene that we're going to talk about a lot later. She thought that was just hilarious. Uh, so it always intrigued me as a combination of those two people to see, you know, would I find this scary? Would I find it funny like my mom did? And if you combine that with wanting to see the thing that popped out at you in the Disney ride as a kid, it gave me a real thirst to go and find this movie. So I finally worked up the courage to to watch this thing on basic cable at home as a teenager. I was about 13 or 14, probably right around Dana's age when he found it. And, of course, the movie's edited but once I started watching this thing and saw the designs and the characters and the, and the atmosphere, I was just hooked. Now, the tough part about this was I never saw the full movie uh, of Alien until much later because there were no DVRs and there was no on-demand or YouTube or anything like that. So I'm sitting here as a kid flipping through the channels and trying to catch the TV Guide channel to see 
what's on Sci-Fi Channel, TNT, TBS, or or whatever movie channels going. And I always happen to come in on either Aliens or Alien 3, like halfway through or a third of the way through. And so I never really saw the first part of Alien or the whole movie at Alien until 2004 when I jumped into the film's 25th anniversary screening with my at-the-time girlfriend and watched this thing on the big screen, which was just scary. It was so great. Dana has a similar story about the Shawshank Redemption, but we'll save that for that particular episode. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All right. So, as I mentioned before, this was my first time viewing. Uh, I similarly am a horror fan person. But what I will say is, is that I've expanded my ability to watch them. And most of the time, you go in with this preconceived notion of what this movie is going to be as far as um, what you're going to feel and the fear and the, the other anxieties that come into it. And so I have this, like, thing built up in my mind every time I'm going to watch one of these for the first time. And it's like that scene in The Wizard of Oz where uh, they reveal who the wizard is and it's it's nothing to be afraid of. It, it, there's nothing there. I get the same feeling every time I seem to watch one of these for the first time and I go back and I'm like, why the hell did I build this up in my mind? Like, this really doesn't bother me at all. I'm not really particularly scared of any of these. I'm waiting for the film that I I really feel creeped out by and have, like, such a reaction to, but I have not yet exactly found that. Maybe it's because I have a rule about watching horror films during the middle of the day with all of the lights on, but that's that's a side point. <laughs> all right, so uh, best performance. Uh, this is usually the category we transition to at this point. Dad, who is your best performer? I had Sigourney Weaver. It's her first big role. She was kind of a nobody. Um Interestingly, the uh, the script when it was written by O'Banion and uh, I believe it's pronounced uh, Sachet or Sussett, they they said any of the characters could be unisex, except that they did not list that as being for Ripley. So they had assumed that Ripley was going to be male, but the uh, producers all got together and said, "No, we're going to make her female." Um, because we think that that's going to leave the most indelible moment or the most indelible mark in this film by having a really strong woman and differentiate ourselves from Star Wars. And so they found Sigourney Weaver. And so uh, I also had Sigourney Weaver, but uh, Rob, did you also have her down? I did not actually, and I, I have. So let me jump in Go front ahead. of you then and give mine just so we keep the, the through line or the thought. That's uh, part of why I did this, but I had her down for many of the same reasons as Dana. I really don't have too much to add on that front, but I think uh, given the fact of how much she has to accomplish through the course of this movie, the airlock scene that Rob already mentioned is a uh, significant point for her standing up and saying no. The confrontation she has with Ash, even before they figure out that he's an android, the back and forth that she's constantly going through, and it really becomes her movie uh, about maybe a third of the way into the movie. And you kind of sense it, even though it's not necessarily apparent. But as this continues, you just get this grittiness from her 
where it clearly becomes she's the only one capable or equipped enough to respond appropriately and survive the ordeal. What one comment I would make is, is there's the old adage, which is greatness is you were either born into greatness or greatness is thrust upon you. I think it's a combination. And in this particular case, she just happened to have both the skill or the attributes for greatness and it had to be thrust upon her in this particular situation uh so rob who did you have as your best performer since you didn't go with weaver yeah uh this uh this is an interesting one mostly because it's the person's only performance ever and that's balaji badejo and that was the guy who played the actual alien uh the guy in the suit and if if you look at him and you find out kind of about that apparently they were looking for someone to play this alien but if they put it on somebody like my size you know i'm 6'3 kind of a beefy dude it's a dude in a suit is what it looks like and balaji badejo was a like about seven foot foot tall and they found him in a pub when they were actually shooting the movie and said hey do you want to come play our monster well they put him through all of this yoga training all of this you know being able to move slowly and hold positions and things like that and he has this uncanny size. If you ever see a picture of this dude, his arms are just ridiculous. And it stretches that thing of, it's a dude in a suit, into that might not be a dude in a suit. And I really think that the pacing of his movements, the slowness, the swiftness, and the explosiveness sometimes, and the way he plays a murderous creature without eyes. Um, you know, they say eyes are kind of windows of the soul and things like that. The alien doesn't have those. The alien has horrible metal teeth and a and a protruding uh, set of what are those pharyngeal jaws? Which that, that's like that's a extra tidbit. More eels have those, which is crazy. Anyway, uh, but I think Bolaji Bodejo uh, really had the performance on lock as alien, and unfortunately, it was the only role in his short life. Uh, but I think he really rocked it. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. Until you said that, again, this being my first viewing, mm-hmm. it never even occurred to me that there was anybody in the suit. Right. And I think that's that's the magic. That's why I'm saying best performance is that it from it's a dude in a rubber suit with prostheses and things like that, and he makes it into a as real of a creature as he can with his performance. I think there is something to be said, and I'm sure this is going to come up on our best scene nominees. But in the amount of practical effects that were still um, necessary in order to complete things like this, and the amount of things that they had to go through in order to make stuff work. So it's certainly um, very different as how we understand movies to be. I'm certainly from the millennial generation of computer-generate everything, that it kind of loses the, the same effect that you really had in this movie, and the... I will give it extraordinary credit for the practical effects that you barely see. And we'll get to that in one particular moment uh, when we get to uh, best scene, maybe most indelible moment. Uh, So best secondary performance. Rob, why don't you uh, pick it up right there? I go with Ian Holm as uh, as science officer Ash, because at the beginning of the film, you actually start to like him and his advice seems, you know, prudent and sound. But once you find out that he's actually here to kind of, make sure that this thing gets back to earth to be turned into a bioweapon. It's, it's crazy. And I think the way that he represented himself as 
malfunctioning number one you know if, if you took an advanced machine like that and damaged it an android and damaged it, it would move i think very you know stiltedly like he does and make some of those weird noises and things like that and then of course when they they finally neutralize him and he's, he's decapitated i think that the scene where he's you know on the on the table kind of spitting up his you know milky android blood uh talking about how they're screwed is is really great and it's a shame he did he died earlier this year and you know, R.I.P. Ian Holm, because I think this was one of his best performances alongside, you know, what he did in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I also had him down. I think it would have been an incredibly difficult role to play because you have to not only be convincingly human, but take out certain parts so that when the twist comes, people can accept the twist. That That's one of the very difficult aspects of this, that because of all of his decisions – over the course of the movie, you can all of a sudden, once the twist happens, that you have to, okay, yeah, I, I see it now. It's like the wool from your eyes. Had he been too human or feeling or uh, putting forth that and the amount of performance, because he's very stoic throughout most of It's almost like a sternness that's there that's human in quality, but... Um, somewhat removed enough that you can buy that he's an android once that's revealed. And so I think for the needle he has to thread for the course of this movie, he became my best secondary performance. Dad, what did you have? Harry Dean Stanton. And you have to go back to this time frame, but in the the early 80s, there was a um, group of actors who had all been classically trained and who had chances to be big stars. Harry Dean Stanton was one. uh, Rip Torn was another. And um, Dennis Hopper. And for various reasons, usually drug abuse or alcoholism, um, they never reached their level of stardom. But they were so damn good at whatever they did. And Harry Dean Stanton made a career and late in his life of just being that guy that was always there and just nailed a performance that was not even second or third. He was always the fourth banana, but he always nailed it. And he was so believable in that particular part that he had and just made that part his own. I'll move into most charismatic because the the other one, and I thought he was incredibly charismatic through the course of this movie, but it's another one where I have him so associated with another role that he did that it's hard to lose that, and even so, I still find him incredibly engaging. And it's Yafit Koto, Parker. And the role that I uh, associate with him so much is uh, Mr. Big slash Kananga from Live and Let Die. And he is the villain to the first uh, appearance of Roger Moore as James Bond in that movie. And for whatever reason, because I'm a huge James Bond guy, I just could not get it out of my head anytime he was on screen that, oh, yeah, this is the guy that swallows the the uh, piece at the end of the movie and blows up like a giant balloon, uh, ends up breaking on the ceiling, and that's how he dies. But as for his charismaticness in this particular movie... I, I don't know what it is. I've said it for a long time when it comes to anybody. For as bad as I am at smiling and how poor mine is, I am a sucker for a good smile. And damn, 
he has by far the best smile in this entire movie. You see that the particular, and we're going to get to it in a second, the chest burster scene, part of that scene is made by him and how jovial he is in setting up the scene that everything is like normal for like 15 seconds. And he's playing around with John Hurt and he's even making a few jokes. And even when the thing starts to happen and you're not sure what it's happening the first time it's going to be there, he's the one that kind of sets the tone that gives you the level of surprise because he's surprised. And for every scene that he's in, uh, whether it's the anger, uh, which I'm sure I think I've have one as one a nominee if one of you don't for best line uh he might be in that um he comes around when uh he definitely needed to in order to take down ash at the end of the movie or it's even talking about them getting their cut it, he just seems to um have a presence that hangs over the rest of the scene and you can't separate him from any scene that he's in either of you who do you have as your most charismatic uh, this is where Sigourney Weaver falls in for me. I mean, because she is literally, by the end of the movie, you are pulling for this girl. You are pulling for her because she is the OG badass sci-fi heroine. A- a- alien turned the concept of a-, a hero woman into something that could actually happen. And I think her portrayal of Ellen Ripley is still feminine, still very feminine. I mean, there's if you go through the, the movie... You know, there's there's a scene or two, you know, she's in her underwear. Obviously, that's not masculine underwear or anything like that. It's not boxer briefs or shorts or anything like that. There's still this feminine touch to Ellen Ripley, which is, I think, something that carries through her character. But she's tough. She's resilient. She has all of the great uh, attributes of both a male and a female hero combined into one. And I think she makes for a really amazing protagonist in this movie because of the way she captures the empathy of a woman, the intelligence, the understanding, and some of the, uh, sometimes the the willingness to take command that some women have. Uh, And then also sort of marshalling that with some of the things that are more traditionally male. And, And don't get me wrong, there are no personality traits that are female or male or anything like that. But the traditional thought of it is that you know macho man he's tough he's going to kill the alien things like that she grabs those traits puts them in her bag and delivers the full package for the entire show i think it's fabulous dad who did you have as your most charismatic tom scarrett interesting i i grew up watching you know i the the movie mash which obviously is different than the tv show robert altman's film and Tom Skerritt's in that. And I watched Tom Skerritt in various things. And this had reached a point in his career where he was doing a lot of roles playing a mature man. He just always seems to be... He, he is a movie star that never became really a true movie star. He was always a, a, a second banana. Whether you look at... I mean, he was the third guy in in MASH behind Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould. Um, he uh, he was the second guy in Top Gun behind Tom Cruise. You know, and again, he's supposed to be the star of this film, but he ends up really not being the star because the script is written more for Sigourney Weaver than him. But he still has a presence. He's a guy that you always seem to like and always root for. So uh, that's a good nominee. 
I, I happen to check online. He's still alive. He's 89 years old. Holy. Well, of course, he had to appear in the last Top Gun film that still has yet to come out. <laughs> yeah, okay. He might just, uh, does he, or is it just what you're I mean? have no That's idea. It was a joke. Uh, Wouldn't surprise me, though. Well, of course hey. not. All right, so let's move on to best scene. Which of you would like to start with your first nominee? Well, I'm going to give the one that everybody is going to think, which is uh, the eruption. It's called the chest burster. Yes. (laughs) Um, The only one who knew what was going to happen was John Hurt. He it was a it was some sort of thing where it was just his shoulders and his head that came up through the bottom. And then they had a, a, a fake torso on the table, and they actually filled it with chicken gizzards and cow liver and blood and other parts, animal parts. Oh, yeah. And then had an air compressor <laughs> that actually pushed the thing through the uh, membrane. You know, So they had no idea that this was going to happen. They knew that there was going to be... Uh, a scene where the alien showed up in there, but they had no idea that this was going to ultimately happen. It did, and apparently it had such an effect that uh, Yafit Koto um, left the set, went home, locked himself in his bedroom for three hours, and would not talk to his wife. Wow. There. Well, I think you, you're forgetting. There were a couple of them that actually... Um, Violently vomited on set. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. The so, was one uh, of them. The other one yes. and I, she, this she is never not... forgave Ridley Scott for that. She she commented apparently oh, in a yeah. director's cut that she still resented him for that. So I, I do want to mention a couple of other things and just interesting tidbits because there were a lot of remembrances of this that I found online uh, around the time that John Hurt passed away. And you get certain backstories and uh, all of these other things. But one of the ones that's the most interesting to me is Ridley Scott got a call from, uh, let's say, another famous director who could not, for the life of him, figure out how Ridley Scott did it. And he had to actually explain it shot for shot how he put together the practical effect of the scene. It was Kubrick. Kubrick could not for the life wow. of him, and so he had to call Scott directly in order to figure out how he did it. And to me, if you have stumped possibly the greatest director auteur of all time, you must have done something right. Totally. And, you know, the, yeah. to, describe, to describe for the listeners, you know, this scene, you know, you, when you're looking at this, and of course many of you people have probably watched the movie, you know, uh, Tom's Dallas is on the, or not Kane. It's Kane's son. Uh, Kane is on the table and yes, the shoulders are, are underneath the part of the prosthetic chest. And then if you zoomed back out in the production, you can actually see there's two puppeteers that are underneath the table as well. So if you can imagine kneeling one actor kneeling on kind of the edge of the table on a cutout. And then of course, these other two guys huddled underneath punching this, this alien prop up through this, this prosthetic torso filled with a, again, an air compressor, like you said, Dana, and then spraying like a gallon of blood everywhere, hitting actors who aren't expecting it in the face with giant, you know, ounces upon ounces of blood. And there's the the scream from Veronica Cartwright or Lambert is is her real terror. They, they cut to her kind of cringing on the ground. That's all real. And it's, I think that's just, 
a testament to this scene and, and how powerful it was to see that happen on from from the actor's perspective. So one additional thing I'm going to add is is this show has kind of been known as the um, or we've brought it up many times the notion of the happy accident and yeah. the fact that this scene almost failed in its filming because they had to come in and Scott described it uh, many years later that in the filming of the scene because they were only going to get one real take of this he had to come in because the uh, puppet or whatever was not going to burst through the t-shirt that they had to actually start ripping the t-shirt in order for it to pop through and burst open or they were going to end up ruining the puppet and then have to do this whole other uh, escapade to get it back to the point where they could film the one shot so the fact that they had only one shot that they had all of these things and even then they almost didn't get it and yet it's the thing that most people – I mean I, I'd never seen this film, but I knew about this scene. It is iconic to film history and all of the things that could have gone wrong and yet went just right in order to get this. You have to notice the intricacy of the happy accident. Uh, let's move to the next one. Uh, Rob, did you have a nominee? Yes, actually, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when they send uh, they send Brett into the cargo hold after Jonesy the cat, and they don't really realize you know they've seen the alien and it's this you know two foot long worm thing and whatever it might be and they're like okay you know that's fine we can go out and whatever the hell that thing is probably in the ducts or whatever it might be, but Brett's in the in the cargo hold and there's the chains and everything from the ceiling and and you know draping and gently clinking and he's looking for this cat and the guys the guy is not situationally aware at all and they fi- they have that shot where they're they're in on his face and then they kind of pull back just a pinch and they shift the focus and you can see the alien is hanging from sort of the the pipeworks and stuff like that right behind him and then it just scoops him up and it i just think that is so it's it's such a WTF moment of like what the hell was that that I, I think it's I think it's an incredibly iconic scene for the movie because that's I think the first it may be the first time you actually see the critter as you know this this man or better sized thing that's actually a huge threat. So I want to point out a particular thing I found in some of my other research um, that I read to Dana while we were watching the movie over the weekend. And just to give an essence of something that you particularly put on that. Obviously, this is a podcast that loves Alfred Hitchcock, but he once explained the difference between suspense and surprise by imagining a bomb under a table where two people are talking. Surprise would be if the audience didn't know the bomb was there and there was suddenly an explosion. Suspense would be if the audience saw someplace, uh, someone place the bomb with a 15-minute countdown under the table before the two people arrive, and the filmmaker lets us see the clock in the background as the characters talk. In the first case, we have public 15 seconds of surprise at the moment of explosion. In the second, we have provided them with 15 minutes of suspense. And to a certain extent, um, we're surprised when the alien pops down and all of a sudden it's bigger, but we also get that moment of suspense because there's a good... 15 to 20 seconds before he snaps up Brett. Yes, it's the... And this movie does this in so many different situations of the surprise 
with the suspense and blending the two. And I think this would have been a movie that um, Hitchcock would have been proud to have seen. So uh, I'm going to nominate a different one. And I thought it was actually one of my favorite sequences of the movie. Uh, It's the self-destruct sequence. And for all of the things that go into that, by that point, Ripley is alone. She has to endure the entire situation by herself. And she gets to the point of where uh, I'm going to accomplish this thing. I've got the self-destruct on and going through that whole piece all of a sudden to realize that she's blocked from the exit by the alien and then trying to run back, trying to go and reverse all of the steps and her panic and sheer um, desperation in that moment where it's really the first evidence of her character breaking other than maybe when Ash is discovered as the android. And you really see the vulnerability that's starting to be there because maybe she won't get out of this alive. For all of the pieces that go into that, and it's not just a transition sequence as some movies kind of do with one of these like, your uh, base will now self-destruct in five seconds. There's much more to it. I think it's all not only a great piece of writing, but a great piece of acting and um, cinematography for the whole sequence. As anyone who has watched a film with me will attest, I hate shaky cam. This is the one instance where I thought it actually enhanced the viewer's perspective of the movie because you are putting it in a first-person perspective as to their their desperation. And you're getting their um, sounds um, uh, of desperation in behind that. So I thought it worked really well. All right, so, Dad, I believe you are next. What do you have as your next uh, nominee? Well, because I'm a co-host and I can just kind of play with the rules, I'm going to pick a scene that's not actually in the movie. It was a scene that was filmed and cut. Yes, yes. It's the pod scene. Mm-hmm. On the way to the, uh, uh, to the uh, shuttle, Ripley passes by two pods. And it explains what happens to all the people. And in two pods, two eggs, what are going to be eggs like that ultimately burst out and attach to John Hurt, Kane in the movie, are two um, pods. And in there is Dallas, Tom Skerritt, and Lambert, Veronica Cartwright. And it is now determined that the reason the alien is taking all these people is, is it's a food source to grow its children. And so she sees this and tries to communicate. Scarrett is able to communicate, but it's obvious that she can't do anything. So she uses the flamethrower and burns them up so that they are out of their suffering. I am so glad you mentioned this, Dan. This is actually one of my favorite scenes, too, because what happens to people in the original cut remains a mystery. Does it eat them? Are there dead bodies everywhere? Or, you know, they just you know bleeding out somewhere in some cargo hold. But the cocooning scene is, is horrifying. It really is. And, and Tom seeing your, you know, we're doing some video with this too, seeing your face on this, you got to go to YouTube and watch this. It is, it's freaky. It is just so it's well done, but it's like, that is absolutely repulsive. And I think Dana, that's, that's, if Tom had seen it, I think we might have our our answer for the winner here. I really do. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm a little bit caught off guard because I had no idea that this was a thing. So, all right. Again, man, um, after we're done, go watch. It's freaky. 
So I'm going to, I have two more actually discovering the aliens. I went back and tried to rewatch this multiple times because again, in my research, I came across uh, several different experts, quote unquote experts, but movie reviewers and specifically Ebert was the biggest one behind uh, how grand and well-developed the entire discovering of the eggs or the like pod scene is because of how unusual that would be if you're placing yourself in those shoes because this theoretically if we had the technology and we were traveling and doing all sorts of the these types of things that were possible in the franchise you could think of yourself as this is the first time i'm discovering a foreign species and what all of the things that go into that, you know, the description of uh, basically somewhat self-narration. There's this really leathery substance and there are all these eggs and they go through in very descriptive language describing all of the things at the same time that you're simultaneously seeing all of this and you're getting it described for you almost like a documentary, like it would be David Attenborough describing something on Nat Geo. And for all of the pieces that go into that, I went and rewatched it, and I realized how well-developed that entire sequence is. I thought it was at least worthy of inclusion, even if it doesn't end up being the last or the best scene. And then I had one more, and it's I, I know this is somewhat of the afterthought. Uh, for all of the action and everything, at the end of the movie, the very end, I am the last survivor of the Nostromo. To me, that is the most indelible moment of this film. She has gone through the gauntlet of everything that was leading up to that point, and she survived. And that entire speech describing her ordeal, not necessarily in great detail, but at least giving the overview and kind of this um, sad solemnity uh, that she has to take in describing all of the events in maybe a 30-second window. And to finish with such a line as the summation of, I am the last survivor, and for all of the other times we've seen something like that where a surviving member of X, you know, that seems to be a cliche movie trope. This is the one where it really hits home, oh shit, yeah, she is. I will add one other point, which is again something I found interesting in my research. The scene with the eggs and then John Hurt is ultimately attached. The the lighting in there is based upon the Who. Musical group The Who. They happened to the Who happened to be doing some uh testing of um laser lighting in a studio next to where they were filming this. Oh, I And heard Roger about this, Daltrey yeah. had been had been um, developing this laser light for the for a Who tour, and so they happened to see him working on this. And Ridley Scott went over and said, "Do you mind if we like borrow this? Because it would be really cool in this pod we have where all these eggs are." And Roger Daltrey said, "Oh well, man, that would sound cool." So he said, "Go ahead." So they took it, set it up, and that's where the lighting came for the the scene with the eggs. So. Um I nominate as my favorite sequence, though, I the self-destruct sequence. I've kind of already gone through it and for how well that works for me. But uh, did you guys have a favorite scene? It's the alien scooping up bread. 
it just and that that suspense that oh my god what is that thing and it's the reveal it, it's it's as close to putting the monster fully on screen and shining a giant light on it as you can probably get without it being like that's a dude in a suit all right so out of all of the nominees that we have so far what do you think though is the best scene you know, I think I'm gonna have to side with Dana here. I really am. I think that the chest burster is so pop culturally scarring, if you will. It, it, it literally left a mark. I mean, you can show that on Family Guy. You can show that on any any mass media, and something pops out of a dude's chest. Everyone's like, "That's alien." I, I tried to think of this, and I can remember at least a half dozen instances in other movies or TV shows where they've done something as a parody. Yeah, I mean, it's so iconic. I really can't argue with any of that, and I think for the amount and degree of difficulty, uh, obviously there was difficulty in a lot of the other scenes, and they were very limited by comparison to what we are now, because, again, you computer-generate a lot of the stuff that they were trying to do with practical effects at the time, so you have to give it credit from that, but for the amount of work that they did... Because they knew that the, that scene was pivotal to how the rest of the movie was going to develop. It's really one of the major uh, turning points of the movie where you get kind of the um, seriousness. It, it, the movie takes a completely different tone after that moment. That if that scene doesn't work it or isn't what it is, the movie probably isn't nearly as good. And so for that, I will definitely agree it is probably the best scene. All right, so most indelible moment, though. I think you could easily make a case for the chest burster. I wanted to be just a little bit different. I went with that I am the last survivor of the Nostromo just because of how somewhat haunting that thought is at the end of the movie, and it really leaves you its last impression. So if I'm to come away with one particular moment from the movie it's and think about it, it's going to be that for me. What it was it for you, uh, Rob? Uh, you know, I think the the indelible moment for me and the thing that, again, as a younger person really captured my my attention was that klaxon scene, the, the orange lights and everything like that. And the and knowing that something is so incredibly wrong here, uh, it's it's the trailer for the movie, but it, it's the those first person sequences, knowing that there's either somebody is running for their life or. Or something very unusual is chasing them. And I really think that the pacing of that and the way it's done sets it apart as something that as a movie is really, truly unique. The That this this is a, a sci-fi thing. Things are kind of dark. The industrial sci-fi look. And something is horribly wrong. And Dad, what was your in, most indelible moment? Again, the one that... I will be thinking about forever when this movie is mentioned, which is the chestburster, because it just so dominates my memory of this film. That's the one scene, you know. I like I said, I saw I've seen this film one time before in like 1980. That's 40 years ago. That's the one scene I remembered. I I remembered it clearly. So I think after 40 years. That would be pretty indelible. All right. This is a good spot to cut to one of our sponsors. We'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. 
It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back, and we're going to jump right into Best Lines. So, Rob, uh, this was your nominee for a film. I'll give you first crack at what you think is the best line. Sure thing, and it's th- it's this exchange where Ash says, you still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? It's the perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. Lambert replies, you admire it. Ash says, I admire its purity. A survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Parker chimes in, look, I am, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug, as he's pointing at Ripley, because Ash is under power, uh, because he's damaged now. Ash then chimes in, last word. Ripley says, what? To which Ash replies, I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. It's so dark. It's so like, oh, he knows it's a, it's a, he knows it's something horrible and he's brought it on them and he doesn't care because he's a robot and he's following his darn programming. It's, it's so inhuman that I think it's one of the best exchanges in the entire movie. Perfect. Dad, what is your first nominee? Uh, the scene leading up to the chest burst. Parker, still with us, Brett? Brett, right. Kane, I feel dead. Parker, anybody ever tell you to look dead, man? And then <laughs> all of a sudden, it happens. So my one and only nominee. I oddly mm-hmm. thought that there weren't a lot of... This wasn't a great dialogue movie. I thought this worked much better as a actions, not action, but actions movie in that uh, most of the revolving plot has to do with how characters are reacting to certain situations within the course of the movie as opposed to trying to be philosophical about anything. So the one that I kind of ended up coming back to because I'm like, I can't not nominate anything uh ash ripley for god's sake this is the first time we've encountered a species like this it has to go back all sorts of tests have to be made ripley ash are you kidding this thing bled acid who knows what it's going to do when it's dead ash i think it's safe to assume it isn't a zombie you know that it's almost a funny line which is kind of hilarious and it's funny the robot's making a joke too all right so rob what did you have as your next um line nominee that was it I really think that that is my favorite line from the entire movie. And I don't think anything else comes close. Dad? For those of you listening to the podcast who do not know what my, uh, what I do for a living as opposed to what I do here for fun. Um, I'm a lawyer and I've made a comment for years, which is there are two kinds of lawyers. Those that tell you what the law is and those who tell you how to get around it. 
and I'm always the latter. So this is the this is the exchange. Dallas. All right, Ripley. When I give an order, I expect it to be obeyed. Ripley. Even if against if it's against the law. Dallas, you're goddamn right. It's a good nominee. Did you have any others? It seems like Rob and I are out of them. I didn't have anything that really struck out or stuck out, excuse me. For the most part, this is more of an action film than a dialogue film. Right. Yeah, that's and it's, what I got. Yeah. There's not the one-liners or anything like that that you see in most kind of like horror or action movies either. Well, I, you know, it's not like, um, go ahead, make my day. Yeah, or, uh, the baby. Back. yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, but even it's not like it's psycho either that has to, or feels like it has to explain all of the motivation uh, behind um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Norman Bates's character by the end of the movie, and or like any of the other pieces that uh, come out of that. This is just pure terror because the the threat is um, against your life, and in a way that is just primal as opposed to anything else. So it can be more instinctual. So out of all of these, what would you say? the best line i'm pretty sure rob you're going to default to the uh what you had but and I, to a certain extent i think i'm going to agree with you i i for a movie that isn't heavy on the dialogue and doesn't have a lot of great anecdotes or quips that is one that i guess does stick out to me now that you mention it i'm just going to chime in and agree with all or with both of you and make it unanimous We'll include your last one, though. I think that's a good honorable mention. Yeah, I, I do. I like that because it really kind of exemplifies, really, <laughs> the issue of command sometimes, whether it be in space or whether you're um, in Vietnam or in World War II or in the American Revolution. All right. So let's get into the categories on our Stanley rubric. Uh, all right, so let's jump right into Legacy. I guess it's always good occasionally to have a refresher on what the categories are. So Legacy has more to do with more than five years after this movie came out until now. So roughly about 1984, 85, somewhere in there. Um, what is the legacy of this movie on a scale of roughly 1 to 10? How do people think about it and appreciate it? Is it still referenced in pop culture? Is it talked about as a must-see movie? Et cetera, et cetera. So out of that, Rob, what do you think is the legacy of this movie? How would you quantify that one through ten? I really think, and I always hate to go maximum on something because I think there are very few things in life that are kind of perfect in, in that way. But this has to be a 10. This is the OG sci-fi horror movie, and pretty much everything else in the same genre owes its existence in part to the granddaddy of all modern monster movies set in space. The the Xenomorph, or the eighth passenger, it's a killing machine. It makes the people on the, on the thing really, on the, on the spaceship, reflect on their mortality. They aren't alone in the universe. And when you look at like that next to like Star Trek or Star Wars, it's fine that the Cardassians are... Or Cardassians? I will say Cardassians. The Cardassians are ugly people. They're nothing like the Xenomorph. Man, those things are scary as all get out. But there's also something deeper about Chloe? it, too. Yeah, <laughs> that's a Kardashian, not a Cardassian. <laughs> ah. That was the distinction I was trying to make. Anyway, 
but there, there is something deeper to it. And I think a lot of people have really postulated this is in thanks to H.R. Geiger, Giger, whichever you prefer, the guy who designed Alien. And the fact that a lot of his designs, um, which I think is from the Necronomicon, Necronomicon, whatever his art book was that had like the like proto-alien design on it, uh, there's a lot of tubes and piping and, bi- and like industrial but biological fit to it. But there's also, and this is the really weird thing, there's also kind of a sexual aspect to it. The alien's mouth is penetrative. It's after Sigourney Weaver. It's trying to lay its eggs in people. And honestly, the alien reproduction is something, the face hugger, the chest burster, it's all incredibly iconic. And honestly, alien repro- the alien's reproduction cycle is really really uncomfortable i think for a lot of people and i think the legacy of alien is that it really kind of went the distance on making something that was pretty screwed up as far as like the monster doesn't kill you and feed you to its kids the monster turns you into food for its kids in a really weird way that's that scene that we're talking about uh earlier that deleted scene and of course you know you get the the, the face hugger that's terrifying too I think there's a ton of legacy that comes out of this movie. Dan, what do you have down for legacy? I had 9.5. I'm a big fan of uh, Family Guy because I really enjoy the humor. Seth MacFarlane, I think, is one of the funniest guys out there right now. And I've seen a scene where where the something comes up through one of the characters in that within the last three years. So this is by far a, an iconic moment that is, people know it, it's still in pop culture, and again, we're talking 40 years. Um, I, I saved 10s for probably about three or four films that I think really have the, that kind of impact that you could talk to 10 people and nine of them would know what you're talking about. Um, I think this scene, though, comes as close, or the scene in this film, the chest buster, comes as close as that to any moment of iconicness that you can put in from any film in general. The only reason I gave it the half point down is, is there are going to be a lot of people that know scenes and parts of the movie but can't remember the name of the film. So I'm going to make the average on this really easy i gave it a nine and the simple fact of it is this movie while i think there are iconic bits of it it may be known of it may be referenced uh there are pieces of it i think it does get lost in some of the greater shuffle for science fiction films I don't think it's necessarily one of the first ones that anybody immediately associates with space or anything else off the tip of their tongue unless, you know, they're of a certain uh, generation that saw this when this kind of originally came out or it was a part of that. I think people more um, easily gravitate towards uh, stuff that seems to be a little bit more rewatchable, like Star Wars is is an easy one, but I think there are other... Uh, film sense that are uh, easier for or more palatable maybe that's the word and i do also think that this has kind of lost a little bit of legacy the farther removed we are 
yes, there are scenes and bits and parts, but I don't think the movie as a whole is necessarily there. And I also don't think the willingness of uh, people to recognize this as like one of the great iconic films is necessarily there either, because I definitely don't see it necessarily on any huge list of suggestions in the same way that I see a bunch of other films. Again, I think that has a little bit more to do with um, how dark and grisly and raw at times this movie is. Uh, I don't think that there's particularly anything that's um, too terrible if you're probably about um, 17 or older that you can probably easily sit through this film without having too much of a problem given the amount of crap that's on TV today. But there are just some nitpicks I had where in the greater scheme of things that we're possibly going to end up having this in a list of 500 different films. I got to find something where it has those. And to me, this was just not one of those that goes full 10. So that ends up with an average of 9.5. And I think that's probably pretty close. Okay. So impact significance. We'll review the category on this one as well. Um, This is a, Within the short term or the initial five years or so, uh, as it had an impact or or a significance in the industry, um, in a particular genre, um, whether it influenced other movie makers, um, whether it had certain uh, measurable qualities in in that particular regard. And this can mean a whole lot of different things. We've never completely nailed down what it is. I think the biggest thing about it is this is more of the short term in the immediate of when this came out. So for me, I gave it an 8.5. I think this was a significant movie when it came out. It had a huge box office. There's a bit of disagreement as to um, what it was and how much it actually made. And I do think that clouds a little bit, but I don't see it in the same way where I always look at this and I I brought this to bear in several of the other episodes that we've done. Certain people, when they were a kid, talk about Star Wars and the first time they saw it in such a, like, almost um, deity-like way uh, that they, they just lionize their first viewing of Star Wars. I have never heard anyone describe this film that way until, basically, I met Rob. So <laughs> I, I don't think it necessarily sat with it, but it's hard to also ignore that it had a significant impact on science fiction. It had a significant um, short-term effect on the horror genre because uh, there are a lot of pieces that I read in my research that had this comparable to slasher movies and that the the birth or the explosion of um, maybe, I, I don't know in the uh, greater scheme when Halloween was because I've never seen it. I know yeah. Nightmare at Elm Street was uh, after this, but... Uh, I think that, and, um, okay, but, uh, the, I, I also think if I, if I can remember right, that, uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was before this, uh, but you take that into effect and then you put it in a genre movie where it could work. And I love when we take a genre, we're subversive and we change kind of, Um, the amount of storytelling and what we can possibly do in a particular universe or world 
or um, how it's designed, and it can be a little bit subversive. So for all of that, I gave it a high mark. I can't give it highest marks. I gave it an 8.5. Dad, what did you have down? Well, you have to understand that I have to look at these as objectively as I can. Um, You mentioned Star Wars. I saw Star Wars when it was released in theaters. I saw The Empire Strikes Back when it was released in theaters. And I saw Return of the Jedi when it was released in theaters. And I enjoyed them, but it wasn't like they changed my life. So I, and I make this comment, I am a historian, I am not a futurist. Science fiction does not ring real true to me. I would much rather go and watch a movie like Lincoln than Star Wars, because it's just me. So I try to look at this as realistically as I can and think about, in this category, I came up with 8.5, looking at this realistically and knowing the impact it had on other people. Because some of my closest friends are much more into sci-fi and futuristic things. And I, I try to think about how they reacted when this film was released and how things have been. And so that's where I came up with it. It's based upon not my personal feelings as much as people who enjoy this genre, how they reacted to it. All right, so Rob, I think everybody's waiting on pins and needles. What do you have as the impact and significance of this? You know, I, I think it was the first time, because we'd, we'd had violent movies before this. We really had. But I think it was the first time in this genre that you really got something that was truly scary, truly horrifying. And I think that really pushed us in, in, a, in an interesting direction for kind of shaping the eighties as a movie landscape. So I think the impact short term, because it was a 1979 movie really kind of played into the eighties. You know, of course it spawns a sequel aliens and that's, that's got the same gritty feel. But if you look at, at other things, you know, the empire strikes back. I'm, I have no doubt that George Lucas took some inspiration from this because a empire is the greatest star Wars movie ever made. I don't care what anybody says about the rest of the other eight or 10 or 12 or how many they got right now, but there's the darkness in, in that. And of course the evolution of, you know, movie magic techniques, which I truly feel uh, this, and this is a little bit further than five years, but this, the stuff that was learned in alien about practical special effects and things like that really came in handy in predator, which I think was 1986 and also Jurassic park in 1993. It's again, it's probably a little bit longer term than we're talking, but the ability to create really truly real looking and scary as all get out monsters, I think was, was aliens legacy to the movie world. So I, I gave it a nine and as, as much as things have shifted to CGI and not practical effects, I really think the fact that they had, uh, they had a seven foot tall guy in a plastic suit slathed in Vaseline and water and, and dripping and all these, all these things. I think that's some of the greatest cinematography ever and definitely impacted some of the crazy stuff in the, in the 1980s with the movie world. I will point out one thing that did dawn on me while I was watching this film again, mm-hmm. which is and whether you call it an homage or a tribute or whatever, but you think back to Hitchcock, 
and Hitchcock never felt it necessary to show the actual violence, to imply the violence. You never saw anybody in this film actually die or get hurt other than the android, which really didn't matter. Um, Everybody else was... dominated the chessboard. Well, okay. By, so by that's the big the guy, one, though, means, That's by, the like, one scene. But uh, that was just because that, that vehicle had to be. But you didn't see you didn't see Dallas die. You didn't see Lambert die. You didn't see Brett die. You didn't see Ash, or excuse me, Parker die. It was all implied. And because your, your I don't know, your creativity, your, um, your, your ability. Your fills in the blank. Yes, and you always think of it as being a more horrible thing than they could ever have done by just filming it. And right. so that that in and of itself, I mean, you know, from whether you talk about Psycho and Hitchcock, the fact that, you know, everybody swears they saw the, the, the knife actually stab her. It's not there. It's implied. You see the knife moving. You see the blood in the drain. You see, okay. It's implied. I just rewatched it like six weeks ago, and you definitely see her and the knife and the plunge. Like it's all there. No. I, I okay. I'm sorry. I just literally watched it, and you definitely see it in the second stabbing of Martin I, Balsam. Yes. All right. So novelty. Uh, yes, we have graded this one out. Uh, the average ended up at an eight point six seven. So novelty. And I think this is, I very rarely give 10s. I started this one out when I did my pre-notes. I was at a 7.5. As we have talked about it, I am going with a full 10 because there are so many different small nuances and uh, bit parts to this that I think are uh, out of the ordinary. So one, it's genre subversive. We've already talked about that. But I think that's an incredible element to its novelty Uh, for the fact that there aren't many horror films. So it's two genres, and it's subversive to both. The fact that you have your primary hero in the movie and sole survivor being a woman. And I will even throw in the topper that... The primary issue of this uh, movie and the action that ends up changing the tone is a monster impregnating a man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's yeah. that's a, a unique thing. It really is. So for all of those little pieces and where we're at culturally, I'm going to give it a straight 10. Yeah, I never thought about that. I'm I, I just wondering how many females out there just really enjoyed the fact that this thing burst through um, a man's body for a change. <laughs> Don't know. All right, so Dad, what do you have for novelty? I had 9.5, and the only reason I deducted five point five was because the reason this movie was made was because of the success of Star Wars. Otherwise, it would have been a 10. That's fair. Is that really discounted from novelty, though? It, uh, the Like I said, the only reason that this movie was made was because of the success of Star Wars. So it's not necessarily novel. They played off the futuristic 
alien, you know, sci-fi type of thing in order to make it. And that's the only reason. I mean, we're talking about a point five. You're going to argue with me about a point five? Really? I'm I'm more (laughs) arguing of the classification of the category and where you're knocking off points. Not that you knocked off points. And I, I can see where your argument is. So I, it's it was a question. It's not necessarily like an argument either. I was well, just least to you being you. Fair enough, Rob. What do you have down for novelty? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna like I respect what Dana just said that that yes this movie was made because of Star Wars, but I'm gonna completely discount that because I think it stands stands incredibly on its own. It's not to say your opinion doesn't count, sir. Uh, but at the same time, for my opinion, solid ten. This was originally planned as a B movie with like a beach ball for a monster or something like that. It was really not supposed to be a scary movie. It was supposed to resemble like the blob or something like that. And to have Ridley Scott come in and change it into this thing, you know, bringing in H.R. Geiger, Geiger, however you pronounce his name, and bringing this monstrous and horrifying revolutionary type monster. This was something that was just incredible and it echoes all the way down through cinema today. If you look at any of the movies that came after, you know, I was talking about, of course, aliens, but things like event horizon, uh, total recall, Jurassic park. These all bear this homage to alien. And it's not just the movies that do it either in the past or nowadays. If you look at like video game franchises that are set around this, you know, you look at like dead space or halo or the Warhammer 40,000 franchise and some star Wars to an extent. And even more recent movies like interstellar and life life gave me massive alien vibes. When I saw it on a trailer, I'm like, Oh, Oh, this, this is alien all over again, man. And I really think that that's the, the defining piece of aliens, uh, novelty and legacy that we've talked about before. So that'll grade it out to a 9.83 classicness is always the most difficult to quantify but i think dead and again i'm not to keep repeating it for the last couple of weeks but i think you did add a interesting qualifier for this one that definitely helps to classify the category uh how much you identify with the primary character and all of the things that went about it. So for female empowerment, I would say that this is much ahead of its time. For a sense of science fiction, I think this is much ahead of its time. Uh, for how much we can emotionally create or relate and still be horrified at, in certain spots of the movie and they're effective versus coming away from it and still having the same dread. There's really nothing about this movie that is ineffective from an emotional standpoint, whether that's through Ripley or any of the other characters. I think it all still works. I'm really having a hard time understanding why I necessarily gave it a nine other than I think I didn't necessarily want to give it a 10. I guess, tell me how I'm wrong, Rob. Uh, you know, I don't think you are wrong because I was actually a little bit dubious on giving this a 10 as well. I think the movie has aged exceptionally well. Again, it's in that same vein as Jurassic Park, and the practical effects are just as ridiculously terrifying as they were 40 years ago. Uh, there's a lot of, again, we've talked about sort of some of the uncomfortableness, uh, you know, with Kane's son and all these things. And I think 
that that is something that very few movies surpass. Again, the alien life cycle and things like that is really a truly unique thing. I think in almost all of cinema, uh, if you were to describe that to somebody that, you know, okay, it, it, you know, it's an egg and then it clamps onto a host and then the, the thing bursts out of it. I think it's a classic from that perspective that it's so truly unique again with the, the art design and the concept of how this creature actually works. And I think that makes it uncomfortable too, because that's explosive birth like that is really I mean, gross, no matter what, it, what or who it's happening to. Uh, and obviously sometimes it happens in the animal kingdom with some parasites and things like that, but like, it's really shocking. And I think that that's part of what the classicness of it is, is that it's, even today when I rewatch this, which is not as often as you might think, depending on how much I like this movie, that chestburster scene is still like, just like, man, that is so screwed up. All right, Dad, how do you feel about it? I had it at a nine. And again, I, I started thinking back on this and some of the techniques and things, and I was thinking about it and uh, like the scene Brett's searching for the cat. I mean, at one point in time, I'm going, just find the dead or the damn cat or die. Because it just seemed to, the the tension just continued. You knew something was going to happen. You just didn't know exactly when. And it just kept building. And the, the movie has these points throughout that just give it that level of classicness that permeates whether it's sci-fi or Western or whatever genre you have, it transcends. It's that, uh, again, it's the issue of surprise versus suspense. And this has so many elements of suspense throughout the film. That's why I gave it a nine. Rob, I don't remember what number you put on it. Uh, shoot, did I give it a, I give it a, I give it a nine, and a half. nine and a half. Okay. So that ends up being a 9.17 overall for classicness. And now we move to our most subjective category of all of them, rewatchability. Now, I think this has taken on a new meaning in the last couple of weeks. Um, When we had Aruna on to do the notebook two weeks ago, uh, she pointed out something where um, the uh, does the movie have the same quality if you can rewatch it literally at any time and, and um, come back to it and it doesn't matter how much time has passed, it still works. Um, you could watch it back to back to back versus, you know, do you sometimes need distance from a film in order for it to have the same impact when you watch it? So I think that is a category we might stick with or incorporate, but then there's just the basic subjective of uh, how, often do you like to rewatch this movie or how often do you think you could comfortably do so and that it would still be enjoyable? So this is kind of a weird one for me. This has always been Dana's uh, kind of specialty category. He likes to refer to it as the Mac and cheese category. Um, You know, (laughs) what are the comfort foods in, in the same way we do the comfort movies. Uh, So I start with a baseline of five on just about every movie and it moves either up or down, a scale based on my enjoyment of the movie with its technical aspect. To me, I this was a fine film, but it wasn't something that I necessarily, because how heavy, how dark uh, it was, and I'm not a horror fan, that I would necessarily revisit very often. Then you start throwing in um, just other small 
uh, pieces of it on the technical grade. I don't know if I could watch this movie back-to-back or uh, twice within a a month-long time and that it would still have the same effect on me. So I graded it slightly down to a four. Anybody have uh, something different? Yeah, and actually, I think this is my my opportunity to... Everybody who's listening now has been, this guy just really loves the Alien movie, and he's given it, like, straight tens so far. This is a six for me, but there's a little star next to that six. It's a six. And this is where I think the movie actually suffers. Because once you've seen it, once you've gone through the blood and the guts and the gore and the chestburster, you're kind of done. Yeah, you notice little details and other little Easter eggs throughout rewatches. But once you've seen the jump scares, when people get pulled in the holes and stuff like that, and know how everything ends... And when everybody's get you know when everybody's dropping like flies, a lot of that magic is really gone, and I think that's a major problem with a lot of horror. I think a lot of horror suffers from this because it gets you good once, and then it's done. Uh, it hits an this movie hits an incredibly different note than Aliens, which is an action movie dressed up as a sci-fi horror movie rather than a true horror picture, and I I can't get enough of that one. That's for sure. Uh, but the the star that I was talking about earlier. Uh, I, and to, to go back half a step here, I will watch Aliens like on Marathon. I just will. I love that movie so much. But this, the original here, I really think suffers from a lack of rewatchability. And the sole exception that I will say that gives it rewatchability is if you're watching it with somebody who's never seen it before. And experiencing it through that person and watching them kind of go, what the... You know, the the whole breakdown of what we were talking about earlier with the alien life cycle and everything like that is mind blowing, especially if people have never seen it before or don't know much about it. It's really, really quite cool. And I think you could say that for a lot of movies, uh, yeah. being kind of a cinephile myself. I, I know that there was an enjoyable period, um, kind of hanging out with my sister this year in quarantine where I was showing a lot of these classics to her for the first time. So as somebody who takes that very seriously, um, I definitely understand that that part of it. But, Dad, this to be your category, what is your final word on the rewatchability of Alien? Let me, let me qualify, because I've been thinking about this. And um, two well, films that I can think of are down towards the one in this category are The Crying Game and uh the usual suspects because once you That's know fair. exactly what the 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 trick is why bother <laughs> okay you know what the whole thing is about and you can try to watch the film and enjoy the film but it really doesn't have a whole lot of value okay so having that in mind having seen this film and again <laughs> It's been 40 years since I've seen this film, um, and it's not something I necessarily vi- revisit, but it's more about me personally than the film itself. Um, so I always start with a uh, taking anything and going to the midpoint and then going up and down based on different criteria and aspects. I actually came out to a uh, 4.5 for this for the simple fact that I could watch it again in a couple of years because there's going to be aspects of this film that I'm not going to remember. For example, some of the suspense, I won't 
be on the edge of my seat because I can't remember how long it takes Brett to find the cat. I'm not going to remember how long it took uh, Ripley in order to set the destruction and get into the shuttle. So to that extent, there is some aspects of that. But, you know, you know what the big scene is. I mean, everybody knows what the big scene is. So to rewatch it again for that instant doesn't have much impact, which is why I had to go below a five, the midpoint. All right. Uh, understandable. So this movie does have a audience score of 94%. Um, again, we generate that just on the audience score from Rotten Tomatoes. So that translates to 9.4 points overall for a final total of 51.4. Uh, that is tied on the list. Really? Yes, with a movie that um, you and I discussed earlier, Rob. Some like it hot. Oh, funny. Uh, so it is currently within our top ten, but it is sandwiched between, with Some Like It Hot between Young Frankenstein and Apocalypse Now. I love Young Frankenstein. It's a good movie. <laughs> yeah, interesting that it took such a drubbing on the uh, on the last category there. I mean, like, we, we th- things were going pretty darn amazing there until the rewatchability came in. We just, we hammered it on that. And even me as a... As a huge fan of this movie you know i'm I'm looking at a six like <laughs> well and i think that's the difficulty of doing so many of these movies is how it has to go through all of these various categories in order to be placed on that there are so many different factors when it comes to greatness and when you talk about it in tune of athletes, we talk about championships, we talk about individual accolades, we talk about best seasons, we talk about um, certain periods of their career or their peak, and then we talk about their career in total. And you have to take all of these pieces and try and add it up to the whole. So that's why we did the rubric system the way we are, because you could make an argument for a lot of things. But only by putting it through all of these individual categories can you really give it some number and then give it some level of measurement against every other movie. Definitely. So this is the last part of the show. Any remaining questions? This might be difficult, and since I've never seen Aliens, um, Rob, you may have to guide me through a little bit of this if I'm asking questions that uh, come from uh, a to be let's say, continued podcast episode. (laughs) So my first one up, why is studying the aliens so important that you would put an android on board to steer the crew in that direction? Uh, That's actually an in-universe thing. Uh, Our our crew works for an international conglomerate called Wayland-Yutani Corporation. There's a whole bunch of lore behind that and things like that in the expanded aliens universe. But basically, Wayland-Yutani has a heavy weapons manufacturing division, and they are using these unwitting mooks who are in like their oil refining and asteroid mining division to bring this thing back so they can study it and sell it to the highest bidder as a galactic superweapon. So that, that again, that's why the, and it, throughout the actual series, uh, you'll see an alien aliens and then alien three, uh, Wayland Yutani actually comes kind of comes back. It's like, we are still trying to get this thing over the course of the, the next two movies in the franchise. All right. Mm-hmm. So do, what is your first remaining question? If any, Rob, 
I guess my remaining question, and it's not necessarily based in the movie, it's why the heck did things go so off the rails after the first sequel? I, I don't, and maybe it's, it might be a critique of modern cinema in this case. I feel like so many properties, alien, some of the, uh, some of the more modern properties, uh, maybe Marvel is not necessarily guilty of this because they have a lot of tori- stories to tell, but I feel like so many times a really good property gets a sequel that's good. And then they do number three and number four and number five. And it's like, stop, stop, leave the thing alone and stop making movies because they're getting cornier and cornier. Uh, but I think the remaining question in, in this case is why didn't Fox and the other film companies that manage this keep a tighter rein on the aliens license uh, alien versus predator, which came out like 15 years ago. Now I think sucked. I mean, there, there are a whole bunch of movies uh, here recently, even alien covenant uh, Prometheus, not generally well-received movies. And I, I think it's really an interesting thing to, to have this iconic franchise almost fall from grace. And again, it's not actually an in-movie question, but I'm really curious as to why is it just a, an attempt at a cash grab? I don't know. So I'll answer this twofold. So in more recent times, as far as the Avengers or why we're so sequel-heavy in the last 10 to 15 years, it's because your entire movie budget for some of these major studios is banked around doing really well on one or two movies. Mm-hmm. And so you really need these properties to hit. So it's much easier to predict that you're going to hit on a movie, uh, especially if you're spending a lot of capital to build this movie, if you have a built-in audience. That's Disney purchased Lucasfilm for Indiana Jones and Star Wars. They purchased um, Marvel Cinematic and all of the other pieces that go with it because he is king right now for the major tentpole studios. And it's very difficult to necessarily build a smaller property and then build on that franchise into something that's going to be a billion-dollar movie without a built-in audience. It's it's just – that's why you only see certain best-selling fantasy books um, translated into that. You see other things. But the other aspect, and this is where it applies more, because originally the um, first sequel was, what, 82, 83? And then David Fincher's Alien 3 is, uh, 92. I think, 92. Yep. Yep. So there's a bit of a gap in between all of those. But here's the problem that I experience with um, some sequels. And it's my complaint about the newest trilogy of Star Wars. It's that when you do the first movie, you have a great premise and you basically build it as a one-off. And for each subsequent piece, unless you have its own independent great premise, it's very difficult for the story to sustain uh, additional storylines that we're not going to care about. Unless you're building a three-movie arc where you're it into individual acts and uh, i say this somewhat as a writer unless you have unanswered questions or other things it's really tough to build on a sequel so if there's the audience and the fervor and the money there to produce a sequel you don't always have the story available to do one credibly. and then you start throwing in that the only reason to do it is the studio and half the time i swear the studios uh make camel movies more than anything else, the best movies are usually the ones they stay completely away from or give full autonomy to the actual creative people. 
then you're just in a recipe for disaster. Hence the new Star Wars trilogy. Right, right. And actually, not, since you were you were talking about some of that and the kind of self-contained story and things like that, I did actually have something kind of pop up here as to the uh, you know the self-containedness of Alien on how it's you know are there are there other questions maybe in universe that are that aren't answered? And I think the one thing that really comes up with that is is the Alien the first thing that humanity's run across amongst the stars. As far as alien life, you know, and, and what have we encountered before this crazy, you know, giant, you know, brain munching and egg laying thing? Because it, it seems like it's so. I mean, the thing is terrifying. Obviously, it's a, it's a freaky looking looking critter, and it's got biological processes that are just bizarre. But I'm wondering what what humanity in 2150 or whatever year that the, the uh, movie takes place in what they've seen already as far as alien life, because obviously they have like fast and light or not fast and light, but they have like cryostasis and things like that to get asteroids back to earth. Well, and here's the uh, other thing I'll, I'll say on the, and I'll let this be the final piece, but it's really difficult when you have something that's successful uh, mm-hmm. to identify all of the steps and things that went into it from an identity perspective that made it successful and then somehow repeat it because we've talked about it already on this this show some uh, there are so many parts of a movie that are happy accidents that just tend to end up working well and you really don't know how you got to that point but because it works it just works in the end and it's really hard to repeat that you have to remember the actors the directors are artists they're trying to make something that has some level of of quality necessarily. The movie studios and the producers are trying to make money. They don't care. They're not looking at this as being, oh, well, is this going to be an artistic success that's ultimately going to stand the test of time? No, that's not their biggest primary motive. They're looking at making money, and that's the difference. So the other thing I'll add just from a a small tidbit of this, and I don't – it doesn't necessarily explain or break down the model for this particular franchise, but it might be extrapolatory towards others, is this particular franchise changed directors and primary writers from film one to film two. And you look at some of the most successful sequels, they changed – writers and to people that had fresh ideas and a new premise, a different take that really could enhance where the story was going. That doesn't always work out if they don't understand what the property was to begin with, but (laughs) sometimes you can hit gold like Larry Kasdan writing Empire. So for your first time being strapped in the chair with us, how did you, how did you think you went uh, Rob? This was so fun. This was so great. Again, to talk about a property that I don't get to speak about a lot because, you know, it's it's an older movie. It's a movie that isn't, I don't know, it is and it isn't up to snuff as far as, like, modern cinema. Like, it's aged superbly. But I'm also that person who, when I was a teenager, I dug into all the, the pre, like, the late 90s internet 
stuff that was on the alien comic books and all the other other things like that. There used to be this old website and I can't remember what it was called, but it was like an in-universe thing of all the stuff that happened in the alien universe from the comic books and the three movies and everything like that. And I just sit on my computer in my dark bedroom in like 1999 and just read this stuff until two in the morning. And it was, it was just really neat to kind of revisit this because I, I know like uh, my wife really enjoys, you know, watching movies and things like that, but this is, this isn't her shit, man. This is not her, uh, not her bag. <laughs> so I, it's rare that I get to watch it with, uh, with other people, if you will, or even talk about it and discuss it. And this is actually probably the most in my life that I've ever actually discussed this movie, uh, by a country mile. <laughs> well, we were glad to have you. Uh, you were welcome back at any point and definitely for the sequel follow-up that we'll eventually do to this one. Oh yeah, get 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 your pulse rifles. We're going alien hunting. Aliens, let's do it. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner next week. Uh, I have, I think we decided or landed on Jaws, Dad, um, and uh, it'll just be us for that particular movie. But stick around on this feed for that one. Uh, please email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com if uh, you have a listener question or uh, just want to tell us uh, how wrong we were about grading Alien. Uh, the Greatest <laughs> Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. Good uh, night and good viewing. <laughs>